This is In My Honest Opinion, a collection of NBR's top columnists from this week. Do you have something to add? Head over to nbr.co.nz and join the discussion. Duncan Garner has had a guts full of boring politicians who think they're somehow smarter because they use a mishmash of words that neither make sense or tell anyone anything. Duncan, you reckon this is perhaps why national leader Christopher Luxon is struggling? He doesn't say anything. I mean, I, 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 I challenge you to find somewhere something that he says that actually is a, is a solid policy that sticks, that's going to change and something's going to happen. Um, he's going to look at things and review things and uh, we'll, we'll be on to this and they'll, they'll do this and that and they won't do too much at all and uh, he doesn't want to frighten the horses. It's, it's Chris basically straddling the middle as far and wide as he can mm. by saying nothing. MMP suffers from this. So you got uh, this election... I wrote about this a few weeks ago as well. This election is the plus one election. You've got these minor parties on the outskirts who are making all the play on policy. Look at Seymour, he's just become so aggressive. And this is this column talks about this. Whereas Luxon is just in there, and he's almost impotent. He's saying nothing. Mm. He doesn't stand for anything. He uses all sorts of words to sound busy, like Don McKinnon used to in the 1990s. But at the end of it, when you listen to him back, he's actually said nothing except 30 seconds of your life's gone. Yeah, she spoke to someone about this as well during the week. Or yeah, last we spoke week. to um, um, an expert in um, the plain language bill, which is going through Parliament, a simple language. There's a, there's a movement around this, which is to get rid of all the all the um, uh, all the long all the, all the words that are in an insurance document or, or legalese or whatever. And and so you get rid of all that, that utilisation, advantageous, all that sort of stuff, and just say, well, we're going to use it to our advantage. Yeah. And so the plain language expert said to me that Christopher Luxon can't be trusted because he doesn't say anything and doesn't commit to anything. He basically just um, deflects. And he's a master of deflection. So with that, I can't trust him, she said. Well, that's caused all sorts of fuss because people think that... Um, She's gone too far because just because he doesn't say anything doesn't mean you can't trust him. Well, you've got to challenge yourself to find something where he's actually stuck to something and said something and and and, and it's still relevant a week later. Mm. And they haven't changed the policy. Look, he's a first year MP in the biggest role of his life, you know. Mm. Um, no one's cutting him any slack for that. No one in the history of New Zealand politics has led a party to victory in the first term. Really? It's still remarkable. Yeah. yeah. There's right. been no first term leader in any party. Which, that, which says he's... he's so he's a corporate guy, right? So you see a lot of that with his presentation skills. Commit to do, commit to not much because the board hasn't yet made the approval, you know. So mm. he's he's learning his way, but he's in the race of his life, isn't he? So you know, National and Act now are looking pretty good um, for October, but Luxon is still dwindling in the popularity polls. How yeah. do you contrast sort of his style to, to David Seymour? Oh, they're t- chalk and cheese. Seymour has been around a while, and he knows the street, and he's smart, and he's copied Winston. Mm. He's he's basically monopolised Winston's vote, really. He hates Winston and loves him at the same time. He loves copying him and working out the good things that Winston had, and he also hates him because he thinks he's been a, a menace in New Zealand politics, basically. Uh, so um, with, um, with, with with Seymour, he's an entirely different beast. He stands for stuff. He says, uh, if we've got the crooks, we're going to throw away the key. Mm. If we've got the crooks, we're going to put some ankle braces on them and sort them out. So he's he's, 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 pretty, he's pretty adamant about that sort of thing. Whereas Luxon says, oh, we've got a boot camp, but we're going to have a boot camp, but the details of which are yet to be revealed. Mm. So they're totally different beasts. Uh, it's almost like Luxon's been dragged around by the, by the tail, isn't it, really? You reckon? By, by, by the um, leader-in-chief or the leader-in-waiting, which is Seymour. Once it comes obvious how big National was on the night, things get restored. But right now, Seymour's got all the airtime. Is there anywhere you think National is outperforming ACT at the moment? or uh, You'd have to show me because I can't find it. <laughs> I mean, even on... So 
what's National's crucial policies? You know, they have these online, if you look at their, their policies, they have catch cries and they have s- sweeping statements. But there's, there's not detail. I mean, Seymour will tell you that he'll get rid of 3,000 people on day one of the government and save a billion dollars and get rid of 3,000 public servants. And if we need to pay them out, we will do because they're doing damage to New Zealand economy. Mm. It's pretty aggressive, pretty hostile sort of approach to employment relations as well as um, as well as well how to run a government. Whereas Luxon, he's a corporate man, so he yeah. knows you can't go in there and do that. Does he? Does Seymour maybe have the luxury of saying something like that? They always do. Because, Small, yeah. Smaller parties always have the, the bit more rope mm. because no one thinks they're going to run the government. No. Whereas Seam, uh, um, Luxon has to show that he's an alternative prime minister in 50 days' time. Mm. Okay. Pretty okay. remarkable. Remember, he's the first MP as well. Anything else you think they could do to just lift us? They, they, they need to. I'm not saying they need to put out a credit card of promises because that went um, mm. that went awry for, for Labour in the '99. But they need to. Well, they'll do this at their launch, no doubt. But they need to. See, the problem is they can't really remind us what they stand for because they're not doing too much at all. No. This, is, this is back to their, their day one policy in January before Jacinda left, which is let inflation do all the killing of New Zealand families, you know, all the biting and all the hard stuff, mm. and we'll come and Wilson off the back of it and um, we won't tell them how much we're going to cut because we're going to cut a lot, but we just don't know yet. They haven't seen the state of the books. They'll cut. How much? What? What positions go, Mr. Sim? What what jobs go? What 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 sectors go? What programs go? How much? How many billions are going to cut from the system? Mm. And who suffers as a result of that? That's these are questions that haven't been answered yet. And I think it's up to Luxon to answer those questions. He needs a good grilling. That's what he needs. He's going to show. Yeah, he'll he'll come on. <laughs> he'll come on. But he, but he needs to. He needs to be tested, mm. you know. And right now it's sort of politics by sound bites, and it needs to be. There needs to be more of a. A detailed interview and a response from 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 um, Luxon because t- to me to me right now I don't know what, I don't know who he is what he stands for it's it's confusing. Duncan, thanks for your time. You're welcome. Like what you're hearing? Join the discussion with our member subscribers at our website nbr.co.nz. Within the last year, both the Black Ferns and the Football Ferns have sold out Eden Park, which is no mean feat. But Martin Devlin says the pay parity discussion is not as easy as many as suggest. Martin, pay parity surely at a high level something we should be striving for or at least aspiring to? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, and I think it is well worth aspiring to. Um, but, you know, the point of the column is, is that... You know, clickbait headlines aren't providing an answer to this. And, you know, I'm more solutions-based rather than flapping yeah. hands about this and yelling and screaming it. You know, it has to happen. Um, let's work out a way how it can happen, which I think is more important. Any ideas? <laughs> well, you know, this is what, um, you know, the national administrations, uh, in, if we're talking football firms, is what I, you know, with the example I use in the column, yeah. uh, black firms as well. But just in women's sport in general, I think it's up to the you know, individual associations involved to you know get their marketing and promotion departments and their highly paid executives together and actually work out practical ways for this to happen. I also challenge all the other media that instead of just writing your screaming, spitting, sexist pig headlines, actually come up with some really practic- practicable ways for this. And because it's, you know, to me, it's it's like the coverage of women's sport in this country. You know, Hamish, it's belittling and it's patronising. You know, it's, um, you know, women don't want their sport to be covered in a way that's promotional puff pieces. And I just don't get why the mainstream media won't get their head around this. You know, if you're going to treat the women as equals, you treat them as athletes and you criticise and you analyse 
which is a mark of respect in my view. That's just the way that I look at it. You know, if I you're think I saw at things uh, like like pay parity, again, yeah. you've actually got to put it in context and you've got to provide a framework around how it can actually happen instead of just pointing the finger at some invisible male oppressor, you know, which is la la land and doesn't exist. I think I saw a good piece from Jason Pine maybe end of last week where he was rating the Football Ferns tournaments so out of 10 and he was pretty harsh, well harsh but fair I, I guess you could say in retrospect um, that's the sort of coverage we should to, should expect right? Yeah totally and you know and and, and, and Jason actually is, is very real about this and you know I mean I, 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 I go back to um, you know the, the White Ferns and and you know mm. talking to them last year, where that that was exactly the point they were trying to make that you know that they want uh, to be considered and treated like the like the boys are. You know that's what girls who play sport. That's exactly what they want. They don't want special treatment because special treatment stops after a while. And as I say, special treatment is patronising. You know, in terms of the football Ferns, you know, a fantastic win against Norway, but. You know, it's like Liverpool beating Man United 7-0 at Anfield last year. They went and lost to Bournemouth the very next game, which probably cost them the Champions League spot. The football firms turned around after a great performance against Norway to put them probably one of their worst in 12 months and losing to a Philippine side they should have belted. Yeah. Um, but, you know, back, back to the pay parity thing. Look, it's just an economic equation, as well you know. You work in a business which is a performance business. I work in a, in a performance business. You know, athletes work in a performance business. You must be able to sell whatever it is that you are making, that's an economic equation, isn't it? You know, whatever it is you are doing has to find an audience that is prepared to buy it. And then from that audience, then you can actually sell and you can make money off it. You can't just sit there, point fingers and scream that it's up to somebody else to do, because you'll be doing that for the next 10 years if that's the case, getting nowhere. We uh, we spoke sort of quick after the um, Rugby World Cup, the Women's Rugby World Cup final, and you, you questioned then how do we capitalise on this momentum? Will will we see any change? I mean, have we have we seen that capitalised on it? My well, sense no. is no. Yeah, clearly, yeah. Your sense is no, and your sense is right. You know, New Zealand rugby, I think, poured twenty two million into women's rugby after the Women's Rugby World Cup. I think that's for ten years. I'm not I'm not sure exactly on that. But, you know, what are we seeing after $22 million with these six new managers in Wellington who are writing really informative reports and essential reviews? But apart from that, are you seeing more crowds turning up to watch women's rugby? I don't with my own eyes. I mean, I'm looking at the television and I'm thinking empty stadiums for both the Black Ferns in Canada, for the Super Rugby Opiki and for the Women's Domestic Cara Palmer Cup. This isn't a criticism. This is just a fact. And if you're not prepared to state facts, well, then don't come into this argument. Because to me, that's the whole point of it. You know, we could sit here for another, as I say, decade talking about it, but and how are we going to actually get it so that those crowds that turn up, as we've seen for the Football Women's World Cup, or for the Rugby Women's World Cup, but we've just had two consecutive crowds at Eden Park of over 40,000 turning up to watch football games not involving a New Zealand team, women's football not involving a New Zealand team. I pointed this out in my column about ticket sales uh, a few weeks ago, mm. saying how extraordinary this is. Well, New Zealand football, where's your plan? Yeah. Because when this tournament finishes, you've got a national team, just like rugby has. What is your plan? Who are they going to play? Where are they going to play? How are you going to attract some portion of those spectators to come back? The reality of it is, Hame, is that, you know, when it comes to a World Cup, New Zealanders will support World Cups. We did it with the under-17 FIFA tournaments, men's and boys and girls. We did it with the under-20s. Uh, we've done it with this. We did it with the rugby last year. New Zealanders will go along and support this. But the key to it is somehow then to get a huge part of that chunk of crowd to come back and watch the domestic games and that's something that none of these administrations are providing answers for Mm. and they're highly highly paid executives and this is what their job is 
You know, yeah. and they are letting down their female athletes if they don't come up with practicable, workable framework and plan and solutions to this. Otherwise, I'll be writing about this in a year again. What better base no could you ask that. for as well, right, than the last couple of World Cups? What's that do? What better base could you ask for than what we've seen from the last couple of World Cups as well? Yeah, you know, and, and it's like everything. You know, like you can, you can open a new mall, and the very first weekend that you open the mall, be it um, Costco or be it Sylvia Park, when that happened, you'll have 20K, you know, queues of people waiting to get in there. How do you keep them coming back? You know, it's the, the the economics are exactly the same, aren't they? We, you know, we're not talking about anything different here. You know, but you, that's what those people consider who open the mall. What shops are in there? Um, what is the main uh, point of getting people in here? Is it a supermarket? Is it a warehouse? Whatever it is to get people back again, you've got to provide something. Once they're in the door, then you can sell to them. It's exactly the same. It's just that the the, the chess pieces have changed. These are professional footballers we're talking about, and the product they're selling is their sport. I don't see any difference. Do you? No. Oh well, look forward to uh, talking about this again in a year when nothing's changed. Martin, thanks for your time. NBR are offering a free trial to newcomers. See what all the fuss is about on our flagship website, nbr.co.nz. For this week's Flipside, NBR's Dieter Deboni talks about cost-cutting promises and how they are not going to fix some of the most entrenched social problems in the city of Auckland, which has just been found to be slipping compared to its global peers. Dieter, tell us about the recent State of the City report. Hi, Kalita. Um, State of the City report is something that um, the Auckland Council and various other Deloitte and other agencies have put together. They hired an external consultant from Britain to look at Auckland on a host of measures and compare it with other overseas cities, and this, this agency does that across the world. And what they found is that Auckland has slipped quite considerably since COVID, um, coming back into a, a functional city has been much slower in Auckland than in other places. And I just, for the purposes of this column, focused on safety. So there's a perception um, that crime has increased in the city and although it is not a related issue to crime, homelessness has also um, increased. So there's, it's giving Auckland a sort of a bad vibe, if you like, and uh, it's, it's really a big problem. Mm-hmm. You say that crime has perceived to have increased in yes. Auckland. Yes. Did they say anything about how it actually might have increased or it was just a perception? It's They looked at perception, so they found that some 65% of Aucklanders feel that it has increased. And data suggests it has increased. So, yes, the perception matches the reality, though to what extent? I mean, for example, the shooting that just happened down the road got enormous media coverage. Um, I don't think it really says anything at all. This is just a, a one-off incident of, of madness. But um, it sort of feeds into that general perception that Auckland is a lawless, mm-hmm. the CBD in, at least is a, a lawless place. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and the report, it just looks at Auckland, but how does this and crime in Auckland sort of factor and flow through down to the rest of New Zealand? Well, Auckland is just so important. Um, it's got a third of the population of the country. It, it, has, uh, it generates 40% of the output, the economic output. Um, it's just very, very vital. And that report put it very clearly, and I think it was interesting, that Auckland CBD is actually crucial to almost everything. That Auckland has to get its CBD right, and if it doesn't, um, the rest of the country suffers because people need to be attracted to, to Auckland's central city, especially in a country like New Zealand where most people come into Auckland. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
And what does this all have to do with homelessness? It doesn't really, crime per se doesn't have to do with homelessness, but the perception of Auckland being an unwelcoming place or it's sort of a slightly dangerous place is exacerbated when you have a number of homeless people in the city. And the point I was just simply trying to make was that before COVID, homelessness was treated through many agencies working together, government, private and everybody, putting people into a secure facility or shelter. It was their home and um, wrapping around services. And they had this really good system. And I don't know if you remember, but three years ago, you know, homeless people on the streets of Auckland were not that, you know, you didn't see a lot of it. These days you seem to see a lot more. And that's because through COVID people have been put in emergency housing, but they haven't been supported with all those other services. So it's kind of a a stopgap measure. It's a Band-Aid measure. Um, and I think we need to get back to that full service support offering, otherwise we're going to have this problem and it flows through to everything. Mm-hmm. So why haven't the um, successful, as you said, anti-homelessness programmes, why haven't they continued? Um, I think it's just the general breakdown and sort of the denuding of the central city during COVID and things haven't quite got back to normal and also let us not forget that we do have a mayor who's intent on cost cutting, so whether he and his uh, staff will be supportive of that. Um, we don't know. I mean, I presume they are supportive of, of addressing the homelessness homelessness issue, but it's an expensive problem, and to do it properly, you do have to invest a whole lot of funds, and he's talking more about road cones and transport things that, you know, yes, they're important, but it's the social services have to be right as well. Mm-hmm. And how do you think this all plays into the upcoming general election? Um, I just get irritated when I hear a lot about cost cutting (laughs) Um, because I don't think it's a... You know, New Zealand goes through this cycle every single time we have a cost-cutting government that it takes years and years to build up social services again to where they were before and in the meantime intergenerational problems are perpetuated. Whereas if we thought more sensibly about these things, and that includes Labour as well, Labour National, anybody who's in power, um, we would try and cut this off at a pass and go in a different direction. And um, I just think easy promises of cost cutting and cutting crime and so forth are just a nonsense and need to be scrutinised a bit further. Dita, thanks for your time. Thank you. And that's been this week's In My Honest Opinion. To get your opinions heard, head on over to nbr.co.nz.